Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to be focusing on single-use endoscopes in this episode. It's another white paper for your ears. We've got a few things uh, coming up. I'm going to uh, bring back interviews I did with Boston Scientific and AMBU. We talked with executives from there last year and uh, really were two great in-depth interviews and uh, wanted to sort of lay the groundwork again. We've seen some news this year with Olympus Pentax entering the market. We'll certainly follow up with those companies in a future episode, but uh, wanted to, again, bring the insights from Boston Scientific and AMBU. I do have some new data from AMBU, and we have a new perspective from Boston Scientific. I spoke with Sean Hooley, the Associate Editor of Mass Device, about a recent article he wrote about Boston Scientific's endoscopy program and its med surge business. So we'll hear from Sean. And uh, then again, we'll hear from hear those interviews a little bit later. We'll also hear from Marie Autumn. Marie is a principal product development engineer at TE Connectivity. They'll be putting on a Device Talks Tuesdays on this very topic coming up Tuesday at 4 p.m. It's called Advancing Technologies for Single-Use Endoscopes. You can do two things to find out more information and register. You can go to devicetalks.com or we put a QR code on the graphic for this episode of the podcast. So if you see that QR code on LinkedIn, just scan it with your phone and you can uh, see more about Marie and Bernard McDermott. And uh, you can also register for that program. So here we go. I'm going to bring you this great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast with, yes, Chris Newmarker is back. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, welcome back. Good to be here, Tom. I hope you're well rested. We gave you a lot of time off. Yeah, you know, we, uh, you know, actually, no, it was a really great vacation. It was great. Uh, you know, um, it's it's always nice in Minnesota to head up north uh, for a bit. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, um, and then came home, uh, you know, right in time to. Um, to, to watch half of my maple tree fall on my uh, neighbor's garage when we finally started getting some stormy weather. <laughs> so, you know, we're uh, keeping things fun around here. And you had a little uh, a little uh, COVID excitement as well with the with the daycare? Yes. Yes, yeah. indeed. But, you know, everything everything is just, is fine with that. Everything's good. So, awesome. you know, we're, we're very fortunate. There's a, you know, it's uh, you just got you just got to count your blessings during these times. Well, your good news, Chris, is next week's Labor Day and we're going to uh, yes. take Labor Day weekend off. So we won't do a podcast next week so we can all breathe a little easier. Break <sighs> the grill out one more time. That's right. For grill the end of the meats. summer. Yeah. You know what season it is. Pumpkin sausage season, baby. Oh, you're right. It's going to be coming back. <laughs> you know, they probably already have pumpkin spice latte at the at the coffee places again, too. It's oh, for sure. Time to, yeah, for time sure. to get the pumpkin drinks. Yeah. yeah. Just to reiterate for folks who might not recall, Chris and I are vehemently anti-pumpkin sausage. Yes. Yes. Pumpkin yeah. sausage. Pumpkin beer, too, right? Yes. We're no pumpkin beer. That. Yeah. 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 I'm Pump- good. Pumpkin bread is good. Pumpkin pie is good. Pumpkin pie is good. Yeah. Yeah. Even pump, you know, some roasted pumpkin seeds, you know, delicious, delicious. delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And be, not too bad for you either. Yeah. 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 Got some. I think they got a lot of potassium. In I think you're right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Which you counteract by putting a lot of salt on them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> People are funny. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a busy week. It's always a busy it week. Has. This is a yeah. super busy week. We've got some uh, some some breaking news. <laughs> We'll, uh, yeah, we'll we bring down news today. later in the new markers newsmakers. We have a, a new uh, a new contributor to the the mass device and medical design and outsourcing pages. We'll we'll mention and have him on the podcast sometime in the future. But uh, let's yeah. roll in. Let's just hit number five on the uh, old new markers newsmakers. Here you go. Let's do it. So you know number uh, number five on the list. We have a uh, you know a, a really uh, good good feature from our. Uh, Associator Sean Hooley, who uh, interviewed uh, Boston Scientific's uh, Dave Pierce about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just like, you know, how, how things are looking really uh, bright in their uh, med surge segment right now. I mean, the, the revenue for that segment year over year 
um, is a uh, 64.6%, which I mean, a lot of that is recovering from COVID. But even if you're like, okay, compare it to 2019, it's up uh, 9%. So, um, you know, and he was kind of listing off some like these significant products that they're rolling out that, you know, are kind of making this, uh, this business like a really important part of uh, Boston Scientific's future. Yeah. And Sean and I actually, I connected with Sean a few hours ago. We're going to have a little bit of a breakdown because specifically about uh, uh, an update on Boston Scientific's single use scope uh, business. So uh, we'll talk about that. That's awesome. They've really become a leader in that uh, in that space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Let's move on to number four. You know, number four, um, some uh, some robotic surgery news out of uh, Johnson & Johnson that, you know, their uh, RS Health subsidiary has signed a, uh, you know, a supply agreement with uh, Incision. And, uh, you know, Incision has its uh, active electrode monitoring that's designed to pre- prevent den- dangerous stray electrosurgical burns in a minimally invasive surgery. So this is looks like Oris is, uh, you know, picking up a little bit of, uh, you know, surgical monitoring technology to... Uh, you know, help them out as they, you know, continue to, uh, you know, work on, uh, on, you know, soft tissue surgery systems to, uh, you know, get into the market and, you know, compete with intuitive. All right. Well, I'm here with Marie Autumn. She again is the principal product development engineer for TE connectivity. Marie, what will we be talking about on Tuesday at 4 PM at the upcoming device talks Tuesdays? So we have a lot of engineers who've spent decades working on ultrasound equipment. So really fine wires that might be smaller than one of your hairs. We have engineers who are experts at reusable surgical devices and catheters. And so we we're taking all of that expertise and pulling it together and finding the balance between, you know, high performance, and lower cost that's necessary in a single-use space. So I'll be talking about some of the components that we can offer, some of the designs that we've already put together to help advance this space in single-use endoscopy so that you can start offering you know, safer products, but at a reasonable cost. Great. And who should be in attendance? Those who are interested in seeing um, kind of how we've gone about uh, designing single-use scopes, what types of components and sub-assemblies that we can offer to help enhance performance in, in devices out there. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Marie. Please, uh, folks, if you'd like to attend, you can do two things. You can go to devicetalks.com as always, or you can scan the QR code on the podcast graphic that you'll see on social media. You'll also find it on the devicetalks.com website where we'll have the podcast posted. Just uh, scan on that. You'll have information about Marie and about her co-presenter, Bernard McDermott. And uh, you can also, of course, register to attend. We'd love to have you there on the upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. I'm here with Sean Hooley, Associate Editor of Mass Device. Sean, as everybody on this podcast knows by now, we're focusing on single-use endoscopes, and we'll be running an interview I did with Dave Pearson, Brian Duncan, just about a year ago, and uh, wanted to update uh, folks on what uh, milestones these companies have reached, what uh, what achievements they've had since that interview. And I understand you spoke with Dave Pierce recently. You had an article on Mass Device. Can you give us some uh, some highlights from that conversation regarding single-use endoscopes? Yeah, well, so we spoke uh, right after uh, Boston Scientific released their quarter two earnings, and they were, you know, very high on the med surge segment, which includes uh, GI endoscopy and um, urology. And so they were talking, you know, uh, Dave Pierce talked a lot about how their organic growth has continued to rise and they've been comparing to 2019 instead of 2020 for obvious reasons. Numbers are a little bit different in 2020, but uh yeah, they're they're really high on the single-use endoscope uh, portion of the med surge segment, including uh, mainly the Exalt Model B single-use bronchoscope was uh, given CE mark approval in May, and then FDA clearance actually maybe a week or two after Dave and I talked last month. So that's coming through, and then they have the Spyglass uh, single-use scopes that they're also very high on, and it's it's a big. It's it's a big part of, of this unit, uh, as Dave made very clear. He talked about uh, how they originally got into the market with Spyglass and then launched uh, in 2019 the first single-use duodenoscope, uh, XLT-D, and then Spyglass Discover, and now XLB. So uh, what he told me was there's a lot going on, and the commercial channel uh, in that space is operating at what he said is a really high level. That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Sean. Now, let's hear from Dr. Brian Duncan, the CMO of Boston Scientific's Endoscopy Group, 
and Dave Pierce. He's executive vice president and president of MedSurge and president of Endoscopy. Well, Dr. Brian Duncan and David Pierce, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. So this is a, an interesting area, single-use endoscopy, and it's an area where you folks made some headlines in December with the approval of Exalt. I wanted to follow up on where you are in this line in the endoscopy business. Uh, first of all, how have the first six months or so gone with uh, Exalt? So the great question, and, and thanks for your interest. So you're right. In December, we were the first company to receive breakthrough approval for single-use duodenoscope. Uh, we have done some great clinical work to date. Uh, we've now have three publications uh, on the technology, one bench top, two with a total of 108 patients. Uh, so we're, we're doing the right work from a clinical standpoint. We feel like the technology uh, is going to be well received by the customer base. Obviously, in the COVID, uh, in the era of COVID, uh, the adoption has been a little bit slower than we had anticipated. Certainly, uh, late March, April, May, really challenging as hospital administrators were focusing, rightly so, on COVID. Uh, we've seen nice acceleration in July, August, and, and starting in September. So we feel good about it, and uh, we feel like we have a winning technology. Just so I understand, when did customers actually have the ability to to buy and to use Exalt? Was it available in January, or is it just rolled out more more recently? Uh, it was really rolled out toward the end of February uh, from a manufacturing capacity standpoint. And then obviously, um, not the best timing. <laughs> the world shut down in, uh, in March. Uh, but the, the interest remains very, very high. Dr. Duncan, can you speak to the, uh, the necessity for, for this kind of technology uh, prior to COVID? And then maybe we can revisit now in the COVID era where concerns about infection are even more heightened. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. And, um, you know, the necessity really comes out of the difficulty with reprocessing reusable duodenoscopes in this space. I mean, duodenoscopes, probably among or definitely is among the most complex scopes that we use. Um, and as a result, that complexity leads to difficulties in reprocessing. It's a human factors nightmare, uh, well over 130 manual steps uh, for, for cleaning a scope and getting it ready for the next patient. And as we've seen with the studies that have come out of the FDA, even when that process is done with oversight and using what's thought to be best practice, one in 20 endoscopes that are thought to be patient ready have a pathogen of concern on them and have, are putting the next patient at risk. So that's, you know, as a clinician, and I've done thousands of these procedures in my practice as a therapeutic endoscopist, um, that's concerning, right? Nobody wants to tell a patient that you got a one in 20 chance that the thing I'm going to use for you uh, is contaminated. So huge need. Interesting, it's still a growing kind of understanding in the clinical community about that need. Um, and and that might be more on an international than on a U.S. basis. But definitely, uh, this is a this is a technology that meets that need. And one, one thing that we've learned, uh, not only is the magnitude of the problem, but is kind of the underlying reason for it. Uh, I know in the early days of discussion, the focus was on the tip of the scope. Uh, a duodenoscope, as, uh, as many know, has an elevator on its tip, uh, this movable ramp that I can use to change the direction of the instrument that's passed through it. And that's different, right? So we thought, well, it must be something around the elevator. And certainly it's hard as heck to clean around that thing. And so there was a lot of focus on that. But as we started to understand this problem more, this is a biofilm problem. Uh, bacteria make biofilm. It's like a syrup that they uh, envelop themselves in to protect themselves from their environment and increase their kind of virulence. And biofilms form on any wet surface. So any internal wet surface within an endoscope, uh, duodenoscope or otherwise, is susceptible to a biofilm. So that means if you're going to focus on a replaceable tip or a condom on the tip or something like that, that's a partial solution, um, which is why uh, we at Boston Scientific wanted a comprehensive solution and uh, leverage our experience in single-use endoscopes uh, you know, that we've built up over many years to make a single-use device that, that absolutely eliminates the possibility of uh, endoscope-acquired infection coming from reprocessing. Well, he hearing that, that's a really good sales pitch to me as a patient. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 
sounds. <laughs> I was like, why would why would there be any any resistance at all? Maybe I'm mischaracterizing it as resistance, but but uh, David, in, in selling this, uh, what has tell, talk a bit about the force you've assembled to to sell, to engage customers. And what is sort of the, the dialogue around that? What, what would prevent someone from seeing this as, a, as a, an improvement? Yeah, so, I mean, Boston Scientific Endoscopy has been the category leader in the GI endoscopy space for many years. We've been in this business for 40 years, and we've been pioneers in so many different technologies from uh, single-use biopsy forceps, devices to create hemostasis, multiple stents for the different anatomies throughout the GI tract. In 2007, we launched our first scope, the Spyglass. Uh, we're on our fourth generation of that technology right now, and it definitively changes the way a clinician can diagnose and therefore treat patients with pancreatic or biliary disease. So we've taken that 40 years of experience and intimacy with the GI um, community and built what we feel is a fantastic scope single use, eliminates the infection risk, as Dr. Duncan alluded to, uh, and we're putting it through what we think is the best GI sales channel in the industry and combining their efforts with our world-class device portfolio, now augmenting it with a single-use scope portfolio and really bringing the full force to bear. When we go into a hospital, there's a lot of constituencies that are going to be involved in making this decision, right? Obviously, you want to have clinical support. You want to have the support of the infection prevention team. And then in some cases, uh, C-suite uh, folks get involved uh, because it's a different economic uh, situation than the reusable scopes. We feel like we're doing the right work, meeting all the, answering all the questions for those constituencies. We've applied for and received the, uh, the TPT for uh, Medicare outpatient. We're working on getting a new technology add-on payment for the Medicare inpatient. So we're doing the right work to ensure that any economic concerns are addressed. And in the long term, we're going to have a technology that's safer for patients, puts the staff of the hospital at a lower risk, increases efficiency, and not have a, uh, an economic challenge to it. And, and we've discussed prior to my pushing record that, that I've, I've talked to Ambu, which has a product in the field as well. Uh, there's a difference in price between yours and theirs. Theirs is, is cheaper. Uh, how do you see that sort of playing into Boston Scientific story? Is that something you need to overcome? Is that difficult to overcome? What's the, what's the situation on price? Yeah, so for us, we feel like we're pricing our scope appropriately. We think the value that our scope delivers clinically, um, from an efficiency standpoint, from a safety of your staff standpoint, and obviously eliminating the, the risk of infection, that full package of value, we feel like we're priced appropriately. And ultimately, we'll work through Medicare to get all of those patients covered. And we'll work with private payers um, following that to get private payer coverage as well. And mm -hmm. Tom, let me, if I just can add one thing on that. I mean, please do. You know, this, this is a nuanced procedure doing ERCP with a duodenoscope. Um, and, uh, you know, Dave talks about Boston Scientific, and we've been in this space for, for a long time making the devices that go through that scope. So we have a pretty deep understanding of what it takes to do the procedure successfully. And making a scope that uh, can do that um, is, is significant. You know, um, uh, as an endoscopist, we get a little bit superstitious, almost like your favorite baseball bat or tennis racket or something, right? Like you get used to what's, what, that, what you have in your hand and the success that you have with it. And meeting the requirements, those requirements with a single-use platform uh, is, not an easy, uh, is not an easy thing to do. And so I think that um, having a device that looks, feels, and functions like a reusable device doesn't change the procedure for me as the clinician and gives me the same uh, success rate at you know, performing the procedure. That's no small task. And I think that uh, that's also part of that formula on value. That's a that's a great point, and it's and it's in line with the question I want to ask on the on the clinician front. We can we can talk about dollars, and administrators have their own priorities. But clinicians are they? Yeah, I think you, you hit upon this a little bit earlier on. But are, is this a technology, an idea they're willing to embrace, or do they like? Again, I guess maybe is there more heft to a reusable device that they're comfortable with? Is there something 
that they're clinging to. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd characterize it as clinging. I would say there's, if you've never seen the scope, the idea is, you, you know, you meet it with skepticism. I'm a reusable scope is, you know, costs more than most people's car, right? That's an expensive <laughs> device um, that's sophisticated. You look at this thing you're like, this is a sophisticated piece of equipment. How could you possibly make this in a, to a single-use platform? But then when they get it in their hands, and even more when they use it for a procedure, um, uh, th- that part is impressive to me. In fact, one of the things that, that I take as a, as a great sign of success is that when I'm watching clinicians do procedures with this scope, whether that's part of a live broadcast or if I'm in a room with them alone, um, there's discussion about the scope in the beginning. Oh, it's a little lighter. The wheels feel like this. The shaft feels like that, which are kind of the usual discussions you, you have when you change to a different manufacturer. If I use the reusable X and then I go to a reusable Y, it's going to feel a little bit different. And that's what people equate it to. But then once the scope's in position and they're doing the procedure, we're not talking about the scope anymore. We're talking about the procedure, the cannulation, the disease that the patient has and that kind of thing. That's exactly what we were trying to accomplish uh, in developing it. So, so there is this skepticism until they get it in their hands and use it. And then I think that skepticism goes quickly away. And Brian, I just, you know, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the clinical publications, the two that have 108 patients and uh, maybe speak to kind of how the ASG classifies ERCP and that the scope's been successfully used in even the most difficult cases. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Dave. You know, ASG, um, which is really the, the dominant U.S. society around therapeutic endoscopy and really the voice of ERCP in the, in the healthcare community, uh, one of the things they do uh, that they delivered to us is a, is a measurement tool for kind of the difficulties of ERCP. Like, okay, you know, yeah, if you want to do comparative studies, how difficult is this case versus that? So they classify ERCP in four different categories, uh, one being the easiest, four being the hardest, and it has to do with anatomy, disease, those kinds of things. And uh, Exalt, in the studies that, uh, that we have used it in to, to look at its performance, have used, been used in everything, one through four. We didn't want to cherry pick cases, take the ones and twos, not do the threes and fours. In fact, I was talking to one of our investigators. His first case was a four. Like, you know, it's just, um, he's like, I, I wouldn't have chosen that if I was uh, making a decision, but that's the way the trial was designed and that's the way we went and it went successfully. So um, again, it, it does speak to the performance demands on this scope in general, and then being able to recreate that in a single-use platform. That's helpful. I know you have a few more minutes, so just two quick questions. Uh, what is what is the vision for single-use scopes going forward? Is this five years from now? Are ninety-five percent of these going to be uh, just the single-use? Is going to be fifty-fifty? Mm-hmm. How does this play out in Boston Scientific's plans? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take that, and then Brian, if you want to um, grow with that a little bit. I mean, I, so. Prior to uh, coming back to endoscopy recently, I spent the last four years in our urology business. And four, four-ish, almost five years ago, we launched um, our first single-use ureteroscope. Uh, and the adoption was um, slow but steady. But over time, uh, what we started to see was the utilization went up and up and up and up because of the fact that you could confidently know that there would be no infection associated with the scope. You knew you could test and work that scope as hard as possible because even if there was some uh, performance de minimization, you weren't going to have to use that on the next patient. So you could take on the hardest and most difficult cases and do those. The uh, efficiency, the scope was always available. You didn't have to rely on the the hospital uh, cleaning staff to, to get your product back to you. So all of those factors led to a much broader adoption than we had anticipated at first. And I can see several of those factors coming into play uh, with, with Exalt going forward. Yeah, Tom, I might just add to that from a clinical standpoint. You know, it, it is one of the questions we get frequently is, well, which, which patients should I use it on? And I think in the beginning, many are going to segment patients and they're going to, they're going to segment them according to risk, like we do in a lot of things in healthcare, right? We have to make kind of uh, risk benefit decisions uh, with our patients. And so, you know, we've talked about patients that have 
something compromised in their immune system, a transplant patient or an immunosuppressed patient, a cancer patient, those kinds of things, where if they were to get an endoscope-acquired infection, they're not going to tolerate that well. That's a patient to consider on. The other is if a patient's coming to my endo unit and they already have an active infection, that infection could contaminate my existing inventory of reusable scopes. So I got to think about that as well. And, and so those are, those are two big areas that, uh, that we talk talk about. I will say I've had discussions with um, clinicians all the way from the big academic centers out to more uh, small, you know, medium and small communities. And, and some of the ones I've talked to uh, said, look, I do a couple hundred of these procedures a year. I don't do a couple of thousand. I have one or two scopes and it is becoming untenable for me to uh, reprocess the scope the way it has to be reprocessed according to the new guidelines and that. And by the way, the thing's starting to run out and now I have to, uh, on its life, and now I have to make a decision about a new capital equipment. They're planning to go with a single use scope. It can meet their needs uh, and they don't have to worry about maintaining this, uh, this scope, this reusable scope inventory. So I think you're going to see at the very least the patient segmentation and then a build from there, depending on kind of my, um, my local regional issues and also my the patient populations that I'm serving. Excellent. And, and final quick question. I know you need to go. Brian, you spoke earlier about the impact that COVID had on, on in, in March and April and May. The impact is long lasting. Uh, salespeople are having a difficult time getting in hospitals. How has this impacted your uh, selling of Exalt and, and moving into the area? Are you being hindered by an ability to get people connected with physicians? If so, how are you overcoming that? So I think I'll take a quick shot at that, Brian, and then you can add any points. I think one of the huge advantages that we have is the long-term relationships that we have with really every hospital that does ERCP in the country and many around the world. So we have access as we're supporting cases. We're, we'll get called in to support a difficult case. We'll get called in um, for any number of reasons. So access is definitely not where it was pre-pandemic. But I think we certainly have an advantage just based upon our long-term relationships. And we've also very effectively pivoted to some virtual tools uh, to engage our physician customers, their staff. So we're teaching, educating, and servicing virtually. Uh, and we're also able to reach out through the other constituents in the hospital in virtual, uh, in virtual ways as well. Anything to add? Final word, Dr. Duncan? I mean, I just, uh, the, you know, we're doing e-preceptorships now to get that, to extend that reach. So clinicians, I want to see this scope in action can, can get that experience. And then the only other thing I would say in this COVID era is one of the things that I found interesting from a number of the clinicians we talked to is that they're looking at the use of this technology to minimize exposure of staff to COVID because, you know, you're, it's one and done. When you're, when you're done with the procedure, there's no transport, reprocessing, and exposing really highly trained staff, whether that's the nurse and tech in the room or the uh, reprocessing tech, to having to reprocess a scope on a COVID patient. So we've, we've, had, uh, we've had clinicians come to us with that concern in mind as well. And I think the, the uh, COVID experience is uh, going to have people in a heightened sen sensitivity about managing infectious issues uh, forever, basically, not not just when the pandemic goes away, God willing. Great point. Well, thank you both uh, for your time and your insights and for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it. Great. Thanks, Tom. All right, Chris Newmarker, what's number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list? Well, you know, number three it was just like we just have a, had a ton of, uh, of news uh, related to Medtronic this week as they uh, released their uh, first quarter results. Uh, Medtronic has a fiscal year that's uh, kind of different from a lot of, uh, you know, large med tech companies, which usually go by the, the calendar year. So, they, you know, they finished up their, uh, their first quarter. Um, you know, they beat the street, sales up 23% year over year and uh you know the, you know we had uh you know our senior editor danielle kirsch covering the earnings news and then you know we have our uh, new managing editor of uh medical design outsourcing uh jim hammerant who uh you know is uh veteran journalist, uh, you know, manager of the business journal in uh, Seattle for a few years. Uh, you know, I, I actually worked with Jim, uh, you know, about a decade ago at the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal. But uh, You have just, worked with everybody at one I, point or another. 
you know, it's, it's the nature of, uh, I guess that's the nature of journalism. Like, you know, and plus I've, I've always been uh, good at, uh, at, at networking with my fellow journalists, you know, <laughs> around, good, I guess. So. It's a good skill, boys and girls. Make sure you, you build yes. them, build those bridges. Don't burn them. Cause I'm, I'm a former president of the society Pre- professional journalist chapter here in Minnesota. So. Really? Yes. Well, that's promoting the ethics, promoting the profession. We, you know, it's important, man. All right, but, Mr. But anyway, president. Jim's a great addition. Yeah, Mr. President. <laughs> Don't play hail to the chief. But you know, um, but yeah, Jim Jim's like an awesome addition to our team. We're looking forward to you know everything we're gonna be doing with him. But um, you know, he uh you know, he had a good uh you know, like rundown of what, uh, you know, Medtronic CEO Jeff Martha was saying, um, you know, during the earnings call, especially like I mean, they're gonna be boosting their um their R&D spending at Medtronic mm-hmm. this year by like 10%, um, you know, which, uh, you know, Martha was saying was going to be like the largest dollar increase they've ever seen, you know, with um, year over year with R&D spending. Um, and uh, they're, you know, they're on track with like the two, you know, big things they think are really going to boost them in the future, which is, you know, their, uh, you know, Hugo robotic assisted surgery system, which they want to use to you know, competing against intuitive and then they're, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, the, the comeback of renal denervation to treat hypertension, um, which, you know, if this pans out could be a very cool technology, like, you know, if you, if you, if you really help out a lot to get in and, uh, you know, you know, do some, uh, nerve zapping to control hypertension versus having to take, uh, you know, more drugs, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool. For those who want to hear directly from Jeff Martha, he'll be the guest on our upcoming Medtronic Talks podcast, which will come out on Wednesday. So uh, making sure you subscribe to Medtronic Talks on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, and just to keep the news rolling out from Medtronic, they, uh, you know, FDA also approved their uh, next gen Evolute FX Taver system. And then uh, I had a story out um you know, just uh, just a few days ago, uh, with uh, with a uh, a top R and D person at the company, uh, Leonardo Rappellini, was you know kind of going over some of the things they uh, you know they learned from the uh, creation of the Micra. You know, like like some some good advice for other people in the industry. Uh, you know, who are you know creating trying to shrink implantable devices. You know, I I'd, I'd, I'd recommend like you know taking a look at that article in MDO. It's uh, the headlines: How Medtronic fit a battery into a tiny pacemaker. So there's some cool stuff there. Um, still think it's like fascinating they took the battery and basically made it the case of the of the pacemaker the the can became the the battery which is just just fascinating and then you can just fit the little thing inside the heart instead of running wires so yeah, that was quite a big uh, a big leap when that came out too in like 2014 2015 yeah yeah it's a big leap and um you know and um and, and one of the other really interesting things, which I was that, you know, a lot of times when we write about medical device companies doing a huge innovation, it's, um, you know, it's because they, you know, found a, a startup or a young company and they acquired it in and Medtronic. I mean, this was like an in-house deal. They pulled in people from across the company and did this themselves, which mm-hmm. um, is, um, you know, it's got to give a company a tip of a hat, a, a large company like that when they do something like that. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers list, Chris. Well, you know, number two on the list, we had like kind of like Abbott responding to, uh, you know, there was a big New York Times expose out, you know, you know, a few days ago um, in which they were talking about, you know, Abbott destroying a lot of uh, a lot of COVID-19 test inventory. And, uh, you know, we've we've kind of talked about it before on the podcast. Yeah, we have. I mean, they, you know, earlier this year, Abbott, uh, you know, like reduced their uh, earnings projections a bit because, Back when they did that, you know, the um, it looked like we were actually getting COVID under control in this country. So, you know, they thought their test revenue was going to, you know, be down. They were started laying off people out of plan in Maine because, you know, they thought there was going to be less demand for tests. And then, you know, Delta happened. And here we uh-huh. are, you know, and the New York Times was kind of pointing out like, yeah, you threw, you know, that Abbott threw away, um, you know, a a lot of a lot of inventory right. um, components you know, of tests right not components no, of yeah, tests yeah, i right. think that was a, a sticking point that what well, they weren't completed tests but they were right uh elements of, of things that could have been tests exactly abbott yeah. ceo you know robert ford was you know telling the new york times hey these were the cards you know not the mm-hmm. not the entire kits uh but um you know, still it was, um, yeah, like some stuff for Abbott to talk about. It looks like they're ramping back up again to, you know, to, you know, try to, you know, respond to the, um, you know, de- demand that we're unfortunately going through here in the U.S. 
and, and around only, the world for yeah. that matter. And it's only going to go up when schools come back in session and uh, we're dealing with, with regular testing again. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I remember we talked about that. I don't know, probably wasn't more than a month ago, maybe a month and a half. And we were both understanding as to why the, they closed the plant up in Westbrook, Maine. Uh, it was a different time than it is now, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, and... You know, like, I mean, it, it kind of like, hopefully I'm doing it justice, but Abbott's response was that, you know, this was kind of like, you know, they're just doing standard, standard inventory, but, um, you know, definitely um, New York Times raising some questions, mm-hmm. Abbott responding to it, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of where it is. I did reach out to an Abbott spokesperson and invited them on the podcast, have not heard back, but if they get back to us, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we, uh, we present that interview to you. So, Sounds all right, good. Chris, I know we have a, a, a big number one. I need to get, we need to get some exclusive sound, don't we? Some, some mass device exclusive. Is this an exclusive? Yeah. Number, uh, number one on the list. This is the story is being uh, finished up as we speak. It should be uh, live on medical design and outsourcing and a mass device by the time we run this podcast. But, uh, you know, Jim Hamran's finishing up an article. He noticed, you know, you know, we, we were talking about Abbott, like kind of scaling back and now they're kind of like, you know, trying to get these tests going. Well, I mean, guess who, is hiring to get more people who are experts in medical diagnostics. Not Theranos. <laughs> They're still around. <laughs> uh, we'll be actually we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll be tracking the Theranos trial in in future oh, yeah. uh, future podcasts. We've got jury we'll get... selections at the end of the month. Where That's right. They go. You know. But, but, uh... but put my snark aside. <laughs> what what company, Chris? Tell us. Amazon. There Amazon. you go. Yeah. They're hiring. Amazon's hiring. They're hiring, looking for a, you know, they're looking for a medical regulatory officer in Seattle. Um, they're looking for somebody like a, a global commodity manager who has experience with medical device or diagnostics experience, um, relationships with suppliers. The job I was saying to create long-term uh, business and supplier roadmaps. So, I mean, you know, Amazon, they started selling their own at-home COVID-19 test in July. Um, but um, it's very intriguing that they're, um, you're looking to, uh, to to get some big hires and in, uh, in, in the diagnostic space, you know, to kind of um, you know give them more of like a global reach in the space. So you know, it's it's very interesting. They could be getting ready to, you know, make a, a major diagnostics play. Very cool. Yeah. Great, piece, great piece of journalism by our, our new guy Jim Hammerett. So uh, yeah, and he's got he's got uh, calls out with uh, Amazon and Abbott. But um, yeah, just uh, just seeing those job posts, that's definitely uh, definitely some news. All right, now's the time I bring in Juan Jose Gonzalez. He's the CEO of Ambu and Stephen Block. He's the president of Ambu US. Once again, we talked with them back in last September and uh, wanted to just get an update on some uh, some activity they've had over the past 12 months. So uh, I reached out to a spokesperson for Ambu and he provided some numbers that I just wanted to share. According to Ambu, the 21 market for single-use endoscopes is $500 million and it's expected to grow to $2.5 billion by 2025, which is uh, astounding. That's uh, according to industry estimates. This again comes from Ambu. Uh, Ambu this year sold a record number of 1.1 million endoscope units the year to date, actually, exceeding total volume sold for the entire year of 2019-2020. So uh, they're, they're accelerating sales. They're accelerating or uh, they're building a new construction of a high-scale, low-cost manufacturing plant in Mexico. It's going to be Ambu's largest single-use visualization plant. And uh, the company expects the plant to be operational in 2021-2022, a year sooner than originally planned. They're on target to introduce 20 new products by 2022 and 2023. And they're moving forward with a, uh, they're trying to enter the GI market. They have a single use gastroscope system called A-Scope, Gastro, and A-Box. Both have been submitted to the FDA for clearance. And uh, Colonoscope is also in process. And finally, total employees year-to-date rose 28%. It's now at 4,000. 388. So that gives us uh, an update. Now it's time to replay my interview with Juan Jose Gonzalez, the CEO of Ambu and Stephen Block, the president of Ambu US. Well, Juan Jose Gonzalez and Stephen Block, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. 
Uh, and thank you very much for inviting us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Embu is one of the, uh, the the fastest growing med techs out there. So it's an interesting time to be growing a business like this. Um, obviously, the pandemic is creating new challenges and new opportunities. So I'd love to find out how you're uh, taking advantage of both. I want to first just hit a little bit upon the history of the company. The the Embu is the name of the company. It's also the name of one of your principal products, the Embu bag. Which came first? Was it the, the, the chicken or the egg? What's the What's the story there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, it was first uh, the Ambu bag. Ambu was founded uh, 85 years ago. Wow. And, okay. and today is considered one of the Danish champions in, in medical devices. Uh, and over the last 80 years, we have transformed the company more than once. And now we are in, in the middle of a transformation to to create this single-use endoscopy market that we, we think is going to be a you know, one of the biggest new markets to come up in, in Metex. And Steve, the, the Ambu bag, uh, can you just, uh, for those who don't know about it, I'm told everyone does, but uh, just tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's a resuscitator. It's, uh, it has very strong brand recognition. You see it on any medical show out there. Um, it's in high demand. It's the market leader for resuscitators. Uh, regarding uh, the startup in the U.S., we started in, in the 80s, mm-hmm. so uh, maybe 50 years later than uh, when Ambu uh, started in Denmark, and we were predominantly an EMS company, and that's where the bag uh, came into play. Um, I started in 2013. We were a small uh, distributed business, basically, with a small, uh, small sales force. We were doing about $60 million in revenue, and fast forward uh, seven years later, we've quadrupled revenue. Uh, we have over 500 employees, and we are a leader in anesthesia and uh, pioneered single-use endoscopy. So um, the infrastructure is quite large now, and we're focused on bronchoscopy, ENT, Cisto, and soon-to-be GI. Excellent. Well, give me a, one, Jose. Give me a sense of the 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 shape of the company in a global sense. How much of it is in outside the U.S.? How much of it is inside the U.S.? And where else are you in other parts of the world? Sure. So, I mean, we are a global company today, and uh, the U.S. is the most important market. Uh, what Steve and his team have done over uh, the last uh, few years has been remarkable, and, and, and the U.S. accounts for half of our sales globally. And then we are very strong in Western Europe, uh, and we have some presence in Asia, especially in Australia, Japan, and and China. So that, that that's more or less the mix. And in terms of portfolio, it's about 30% anesthesia, 30% uh, patient monitoring, and then 40% uh, single-use endoscopy. And that division is growing, I mean, very, very rapidly. You're talking about 40% plus, which basically means that it doubles, you know, every two to three years. And that's the main engine of our company, you know? Let me let me get the COVID question out of the way. Um, but it's you, you are a global company. Con- company you, you touch many countries. How has your experience been in different markets? Let, let me talk a little bit uh, about globally, and then Stephen can talk about uh, the US. Uh, first of all, our products are used in the treatment of COVID nineteen patients. So actually, in this pandemic, Ambu play a very important role. Uh, both our Ambu back the the, the upon which this company was founded and our single-use bronchoscopy uh, were at the forefront in terms of the treatment of COVID-19 patients. And then the, um, you know, the impact has varied by market significantly, depending on, on how much, uh, how strong was the pandemic, the type of healthcare system, where it was a, a government-driven or where it was major healthcare systems. Uh, which basically means that we had significant volatility. So if I look at Europe in, in the last quarter, it tripled in sales. And, and it was mainly driven by the key Western European markets. And, uh, and the U.S. is growing over 20% wow. year to date. So, I mean, it has been quite a test for us. We have had to rapidly expand manufacturing capacity and and, and air freight our pros to make sure that we fulfill our role as a healthcare company. Yeah, no, I'm, I just, I, yeah, because I'm curious because it seems as if with the single-use endos- endoscopy uh, tool and your and the Ambu bags, you are positioned for uh, <laughs> a lot of opportunity there in a, in a difficult time like this. Yeah, you know, uh, with COVID, uh, it's heightened awareness now with, with uh, contamination and the risk of infection. So we're in excellent shape. We have a diversified portfolio, so 
from uh, March to June with elective surgeries uh, non-existent, some of our anesthesia products were put on hold, but resuscitators and the endoscopy products and any single use scope product uh, showed a huge increase, probably double increase in Q2. We've also managed to launch three new products during COVID uh, with our monitors and two new scopes and uh, the training on, you know, virtual training and, and the engagement of, uh, of our customers and our salespeople probably was uh, more efficient and more effective than, than ever before. And I think we're just going to be a much stronger company, at least in the U.S. Uh, after this. Well, let's focus on your news in the U.S. This summer, you, uh, you got an approval from the FDA for your single-use endoscope, but, but this was not your first device. Give us a little bit of history of, of the single-use endoscope portfolio that you have, because it, it dates back prior to even to this summer? So uh, in 2013, we, or 2014 or so, we launched the first uh, bronchoscope, the ASCOPE 3. Um, and then uh, 2015, there was a CRE crisis with uh, ERCP products. Uh, it, it's, it did catch na- national attention. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of it as far as the infections regarding uh, the ERCP products. So it's been, uh, been a, quite, of a bo- quite of a boom. So we've launched the bronchoscope the ENT product and the Cystoscope. Um, and we just got approval, as you mentioned, for uh, our single-use ERCP product. The interest level for the GI space is greater than any product we ever launched, uh, especially with the documented infections. So there's a strong, there's a strong interest for, the, for a single-use option. Uh, as you mentioned, we're, all, we're also excited that we received FDA clearance uh, with breakthrough designation. Reimbursement uh, available, so I think the track, you know, it's going to get get moving along uh, pretty quickly. And we have a price advantage compared to our other single-use competitor. We're about half the price, and we're we're incredibly excited because it's a multi-billion-dollar market that uh, is much larger than the markets that we've been playing in uh, as of late. And the competitor is Boston Scientific. I'll say it since you won't say it, but well, let's focus on on reimbursement. Were you impacted this week? CMS issued. Uh, uh, reimbursement for innovative breakthrough products, I think related to specifically a pandemic. And that's an area I'm currently exploring myself so I can understand. Were you impacted by that at all? Or did you already have the reimbursement you needed prior to, to this week's news from CMS or the executive order, I should say, that led to the news from CMS? Well, the, the, the reimbursement that was given for a single use ERCP was, um, was, um, uh, offset reimbursement. So it's only used for outpatients, which are about 30 to 40% of the patients. So really the price at the pump is what's driving the sale. Our product is at least half, half the price of, uh, of the competitors. And there is reimbursement for a, a small majority of, of the patients, but overall, it's really the cost of the product that's going to dictate uh, the overall cost. And is there any need for you to have uh, salespeople in the room when it's used? I would imagine not to assist with this. It's just sort of get it in the shelves kind of thing. I, you know, I would say ideally it's best to have the salesperson in the room. We hired about 160 or so GI professionals. I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, we probably have the best GI sales force on the market, uh, in the market, excuse me. Uh, we have X, you name it, every top GI company, uh, they're here. They wanted to launch this product. They wanted to make history. Uh, they have contacts with with all the key uh, gastroenterologists around the country. Um, if they can't get into cases, which uh, obviously we can't get into many cases nowadays, they are doing virtual uh, meetings. They're meeting in parking lots. They're meeting in coffee shops. There's great interest in this product. And uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of demos and presentations in a short time span of maybe uh, a month or two. Interesting. And those, those meeting in the parking lots, those who are in, in coffee shops are with surgeons or comp- uh, hospital executives or whomever, all the above? All the above. All uh, physicians, healthcare providers, uh, administration, executives. Uh, it's amazing what's going out there. Juan Jose, what's, uh, what's, how does this look on a, on a global sense? What are other markets doing? Uh, is price as much of a driver there as it, as it is here? And are you running into the same hurdles as to getting an opportunity for salespeople to interact with potential customers or customers? I, I mean, endoscopy, as you know, is one of the largest uh, medical device markets. And it's a very established market. And 
and, and it's mainly it's a reusable endoscopy model. And and basically what we are doing globally is driving the creation of a single-use market, which is a combination of uh, a product that is a hundred percent sterile, so there is no risk of contamination that have very strong economics, very advanced technology, and it gives uh, hospitals a lot of convenience and flexibility. So when you look at that value proposition, it actually travels around the world quite well. What we have created in the US, we have done something similar in the United Kingdom, and Spain, and Italy, and Germany, uh, and Australia. Of course, outside of the U.S., pricing is even more important, and that gives us a, a stronger position. And, and, and depending where you are, there are some additional uh, differences in terms of whether it is a hospital base or in clinic, and you have different levels of access. But, but for the most part, healthcare systems are trying to restart electives. They look at single-use endoscopy as a solution to be able to do it without any concerns around infection. No? So is just, just looking broadly ahead to, to where we're headed with single-use endoscopy, is, is your vision and the vision of anyone else selling products in this market, parentheses, Boston Scientific, that, to have all endoscopes be disposable, or do you see this as a, as a subset of the endoscope market? And there'll still be some that need to be that need to be disinfected and sterilized, but they'll also be single use used side by side. What is what does the future look like in your mind? I, you know, as, as far as as far as my mind, um, I I seriously see over the next five to ten years, uh, reuse, uh, reusables. Maybe they won't be gone totally, but uh, single use will have a, the majority of the market share. There's just no reason to use a reusable product. Single use is, you know, the image screen, the image is better, the functionality, the availability, the cost. Um, it's not about uh, if you're going to do it or, or convert. It's about when you're going to convert. And, you know, most hospitals, I mean, right now, the top 500 hospitals in the U.S., we've converted 96% of them as far as um, volume of, of bronchoscopies. There, there is no reason not to do it. And the hospitals that aren't doing it are really pointing their fingers to the hospitals next door saying they have the problem. We don't have the problem. And quite honestly, uh, once there's a seminal event, they call us and they convert immediately. So sometimes it takes uh, uh, a couple of weeks and sometimes it might take a couple of years, but sooner or later they will go single use. Is conversion, you consider if you just get in the door or is it every, all the endoscopes are used? Are all single use? They're well, used. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of different types of scopes. Uh, we have a bronchoscopy. We have bronchoscopy. We have cysto. We have ENT. We have uh, duodenoscope. Um, so we have different salespeople for for different scopes. And conversion. I guess the first step to conversion is to have them accept the the idea of why they need to go single use. Sometimes it, it could be a couple of champions within, within, the, uh, within the hospital that start off the, con the conversion, and then it leads to a full conversion. There are some hospitals, very large institutions out there that, um, that just totally convert. Um, it, it's all based on what has happened in the past, um, administration, um, possible legalities, uh, workflow expenses. Um, th there's an array of, uh, of reasons why. And, and at the end of the day, it, have, it has to have a good health economic story, which, which we do have. Sure. And Juan Jose, how about uh, outside the U.S.? I mean, what, what I was thinking is, uh, just reflecting on your question, I mean, today's single-use endoscopy is about 1% to 2% of the total endoscopy market. So if you ask me, you know, over the next few years, are we going to coexist? Uh, definitely. In most hospitals, there will be reusable and there will be single use. But if you were to start doing endoscopy today with the technology available today, you will never create a reusable model. You will never say, let's, uh, you know, buy a $200,000 tower with a $50,000 reusable scope, less use chemicals to reprocess it, and by the way, at the end, it might not be fully sterile, and it might break, and then you will have to buy another one, 
uh, it's just it, it's a business model that you will not you will never do it now so if you ask me going forward what do i think uh, technology is moving so fast and, and i'm talking about technology that powers single use sensors image enhancement software artificial intelligence monitors lighting material science you know every year all that trends to move to single use become stronger, more focus on infection control, more awareness of the benefits in terms of economics, more need for convenience and flexibility, regulators, reimbursement. And then on top of that, you put technology. And I fully agree with Stephen. In 10 years, you should see a significant shift towards single use now. Yeah, t Tom, j just to add a little bit to that, and, uh, and you know, cross-contamination is a huge issue. Infections are a huge issue. COVID has heightened awareness. But um, I I'm sure you follow ECRI uh, annually, and scope contamination is in the top 10 in issues that hospitals, fa that hospitals face on a, on a yearly mm -hmm. basis. And reprocessing a scope, there's 100 steps to reprocess a scope, and human error is, is inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, the studies out there show upwards of 50% that reusable scopes are contaminated. Um, I have just countless stories, and there's many studies. I mean, there's one study that said 57% are contaminated. So it's, you know, again, it, it's, not, it, it's not if, it's, it's when. Great. This podcast allows me to ask stupid questions. So my stupid question, maybe everyone else who's listening knows, is what, what changed? Why are, we, why are you able to create these scopes now that can be disposed of as opposed to before? Is it just new materials, just cheaper manufacturing? Again, all of the above. What's, what's new in, the, in this technology? I, I would say two things happen. Number one, technology reached a point where now you can have a single-use endoscopy with the image resolution required to be able to have a, a good procedure and a good diagnostic. And, and, you know, if you remember your iPhone five generations ago versus your iPhone today, uh, the quality of the image, so that sensor, those sensor upgrades, that's actually what is also driving um, our own innovation. And then uh, on the other side, you have an environment that now is more focused on understanding what is the true contamination level, the importance of infection control, how much it really costs to have all that reusable endoscopy infrastructure, and, and how does it compare against single use. Uh, and I will say those things is what actually allow AMBU to start innovating, to create a market, and now moving into an acceleration phase now. And final question, I know you need to go. Uh, regarding the, uh, the agreement with Premier, it's a three-year agreement. What, uh, tell us a little bit about that, Stephen, or, or Juan Jose, and uh, what does that mean? It sounds as if uh, it gives you some degree of exclusivity uh, in the area, or does it? It does. So, so we have, uh, we have a, a fantastic corporate account team and great relations with, with all the GPOs and IDNs. Uh, we've been working with Premier very closely. Um, they developed uh, and created a, a single-use a single use, uh, endoscopy agreement. It's a nationwide agreement, um, but for uh, sole source, it's more for Premier. I'm sorry, it's more for Surpass and for Ascend, which are uh, affiliates of Premier. So the Premier agreement is a nationwide multi-source uh, but regarding Ascend and Surpass, we have a single uh, a sole source for Bronchoscope. But all scopes are on the agreement. And that will uh, essentially give you access. How, how, it, the, the membership of Premier represents 4,100 hospitals and health systems, 200,000 other providers. So, I mean, what does this do for your, your market penetration in the U.S.? Well, it definitely helps. I mean, it definitely helps in Surpass and, and Ascend, where we have a sole source. And Premier will work with us to convert those hospitals. Uh, regarding GPOs in general, it, it just gives you uh, a ticket to get to the dance. Uh, there are no obstacles, so it gives us free passage to uh, work with Premier and start converting their hospitals across the board. 
But regarding surpass and ascend, it will definitely give us uh, incremental revenue for sure. All right. Well, that's great news about Premier. Uh, Juan Jose, we'll give you the opportunity to wrap this up. I mean, this is a, is a great story. Uh, European company building, growing into a global, uh, a global device company. What, uh, what does that say for, well, Ambu's story, but also more broadly about opportunities in Europe? Well, I, I mean, the, the aspiration for Ambu is to be the world's most innovative single-use endoscopy player. And, and I would say that is quite unique, uh, first because we are based in Europe, and it has been sometimes if you have a, a European medtech champion, one that is able to disrupt uh, an established market, market and create an entirely new one. Uh, and that's what we are trying to do. And, and we invest aggressively in innovation. We believe that we come from the future. We are taking all the technologies, all the new technologies coming up to be able to advance patient care in a way that has not been done before. And, and we are very excited with the possibilities. Excellent. Well, it's a great story. I'm uh, grateful that you uh, chose to share it with us. And uh, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, Chris Newmarker. Now is the time to plead for social media love. Where can folks find you on those social media channels? You can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. And I'm on Twitter, at Newmarker. So always, always happy to connect. Absolutely. And I'm on the Twitter as well at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. And uh, please do connect with Chris and myself when you share this podcast episode on your social media channels. And you will share this podcast episode on your social media channels. We insist and uh, we'd love to be part of that conversation. Also, please like, follow, subscribe. There you go. be, Be there or be square. That's right. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Right, Chris? You're either with us or you're not with us, I guess. But anyway. wow, you're, you're channeling the, the, <laughs> the W years. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm in my 30s again, Tom. <laughs> I'm happy to bring you back to those healthy on days. So please do uh, please do subscribe to this podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we're available on every major podcast channel. So if you subscribe, you get these episodes sent directly to you as soon as I push publish. And uh, you don't have to wait for us to post it, post it on social media or get it up on any website. It'll be it'll be sent right to your listening device. It can't, it's super convenient, super duper convenient. So just subscribe. And uh, that's it. Please uh, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Hey, take care. Enjoy the end of the summer. And get vaccinated for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, most med tech people people know to get vaccinated, right? I mean, they got to be getting vaccinated, but but, but pester your relatives. <laughs> <laughs>